teach at all within the past day or so. I actually decided to preach this last night because of some of the things that were happening and going on in our world. And you'll see what I'm talking about in just a minute. And um, so I'm going to be looking at another Old Testament text, Charles. I decided after I talked to you, I changed it yet again uh, to Isaiah chapter 6. So I'd ask you please to turn to Isaiah chapter 6 in your Bibles. And all of you are familiar with, this is the call of Isaiah. And the focus of this particular text is the unadulterated holiness of God, which is seen here in these verses. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word this morning? I'm going to read the entire chapter. Let's hear the word of the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe to me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my lips and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Keep, uh, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until the city lays waste without inhabitants and the houses without people. And the land is desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away. For the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. Like a timbereth or an oak whose stump remains, it shall be filled. The holy seed is its stump. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Please be seated. Uh, please, let's go to prayer. Pray for me as I preach this text. Pray for yourselves as you sit under the proclamation of God's word this morning. Let's pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we would confess that we are not sufficient to benefit from the reading of the scriptures or from the preaching of your word. Unless you bless, O Lord, we pray your blessings upon us this morning. I pray that you would be with me as I preach this text. Pray that you would be with your people as they hear the word of God read and preached. And would pray, O God, that you would cause this to quicken us. And cause us, O God, to grow in our understanding of your nature, your character, your holiness. And that we live our lives before the God who is infinite in holiness And this is the God that deals with the world, the God that uh, rules over the world. 
We pray for your grace, O God. Uh, Take away, O Lord, from us a dullness of faith. Take away from us, Lord, hearts that are hardened, ears that are not open, eyes that cannot see. And grant grace upon grace that we may profit from the word of God this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. How would you respond if you saw somebody you loved, your wife, your husband, a child, or someone who was a friend that had your heart that you loved dearly being slapped in the face? How would you respond to that? A Will Smith sort of slap. If you saw the film clip from the Oscars and you saw what Will Smith did to Chris Rock and hit him very, very hard, what would you do? How would you respond to that? Well, I will say this. Pay attention. Christ has slapped in the face constantly in our society. Does the church really care? Are we really grieved about it? Are you grieved about it? I was very disappointed when the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence were at the ball game. They're atheists. They hate Christ. Men that dress up as nuns and exhibit blasphemous deeds. I saw a film clip. One of them were tied to a cross. And the things that were taking place have to ask ourselves, what is your image, your view, your understanding? What's your God like? Is he basically a dear friend and nothing more than that, really? Or do you understand what Isaiah understood, that our God is a God who is altogether through and through holy? And that our Christ is God who is through and through holy as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That comes out very clearly in this text in Isaiah and the sixth chapter. That God is a God who is so holy that even the sinless angels show themselves as they are in his presence. And because God is through and through holy, he is to be revered by his people, ultimately revered by the entire world. They will bend the knee. They will confess that Christ is Lord. That day is coming. And the first thing I would bring to you this morning is... The God of the universe is a sovereign God. Isaiah has this vision of God. Now, we know that God is spirit. First Timothy 1.17 says, Now to the king, immortal, invisible, to God, who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. God is spirit. As Christ told the woman at the well, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And yet here in Isaiah chapter 6, there is what we call a theophany. A visible representation of God. And it is the second person of the Godhead. All of these manifestations of God were Christ, pre-incarnate Christ, as it is here in the text as you see him on the throne. This is the king, immortal, invisible, God only wise, the Lord Jesus Christ here. And there are several things important concerning this vision, the timing of it. In the year that King Uzziah died, we read here. This is a very important time. The, the kingdom under this man thrived. This boundaries were taken back to the original boundaries. He was a godly, godly man. The kingdom was prospering under him spiritually. As the priests were faithful. 
as the word of God was honored and taught by those who were priests. The place of the vision is important. It's in the temple. What about the temple? What's the place where God is worshipped? The place where true worship took place, the place where God is honored by his people through their worship. And the character of God here is seen that he is sovereign. He is the king. He is on the throne. He's the king of all universe. And also we see here that he is a God who is altogether through and through holy. This is the call of Isaiah. My call was nothing like this. I wish it had been. I'd love to have seen this vision that Isaiah saw of God and his holiness there displayed in the temple before this prophet who sees something that no other person had ever seen, this expression of God's holiness. And he would have Isaiah to understand that he is holy and he alone is holy. And that will encourage the prophet It will give the prophet strength to go forth and to preach the message he is going to preach. Chapters 1 through 39 are called the book of judgment. So all through those chapters, there is condemnation upon Israel, condemnation upon the nations because of their sinfulness. So as Isaiah preaches, he'll remember the God that I am representing, uh, the message I am proclaiming is a message from the God who is altogether through and through absolutely holy. And Isaiah could say, I've seen this. I've seen this representation of this holy God, and it shook me to the core. John Calvin said this, There was exhibited to Isaiah such a form as allowed him, according to his capacity, to perceive the inconceivable majesty of God. That which is inconceivable, he was able to perceive through this manifestation, through this theophany. Can you imagine what that was like? This happened in time and space. Don't let this slip by you. Don't read this as you're reading the newspaper. Don't read this as you're reading the novel. This took place in history. This great manifestation of God to the prophet Isaiah. Can you imagine what he thought, what he felt, what he experienced? We know from what he tells us. It was something that was beyond him. It was something more than he could bear. As we learn in the text. The great king Uzziah had a falling, as you well know. He was a prideful man. Success can breed pride in an individual. And what did Isaiah do? I mean, what did Uzziah do? Well, he went into the temple to offer sacrifices. You remember what happened? They came in to correct him. The priest did. Then he scolded him. And leprosy appeared on his head. So he lived in leprosy to the end of his days. But still, he was a godly king. Though he had a severe falling, he was a godly king. Well, now the king of kings appears to this prophet. The king of kings who has no fault. The king of kings who has no sin. The one who is sovereign, not simply over the world. The one who is sovereign, not simply over the planet and the solar system and the galaxy, the Milky Way, but the entirety of the cosmos. All things are under his rule. We read that in the scriptures. We read that in the book of Hebrews. All things are subject to him. Not some things, but everything that exists, he rules over them. Our great God, our great King, our great Savior rules over all things. Here he is sitting upon the throne as the ruler of the universe. 
And how does Isaiah respond to this? This great manifestation of God's holiness. What does he say here? Well, he says that he is undone. He is coming apart of the saints. Now, he was not a wicked man. Isaiah was a godly man. Isaiah was a true, faithful servant of God. And yet, when he saw this, it was more than he could bear, more than he could deal with. And we would certainly expect this to be the case. The entire vision shouts of God's majesty. His holiness. The exaltation is seen in his name. Adonai, meaning sovereign ruler. That's the word used here. Adonai, the sovereign ruler of all things. It is seen in the throne. It is seen in the location again. The vision took place in the temple. He is the one who is to be worshipped. He alone is to be worshipped. He alone is holy. If let me read this quote to you. What better place for Isaiah to meet the Lord in this fashion than in the temple, the place of worship? The appearing beckons worship, awe, and fear. Reverence is expressed to God in the utmost. He knew God. But listen to this. He had never known him like this. He knew the Lord well. But he had never seen him like this. He never seen such a beatific vision. So now he knows the Lord by experience. This exaltation of God here seen in his regal robes, filling the temple of magnificent sight indeed in the life of this man. Let me read this to you. As far as we know, Isaiah is the only prophet to have had the dreadful privilege of seeing God in this kingly fashion. As far as we know, Isaiah is the only prophet to have ever seen God in this fashion, as recorded for us. Not even the vision of the Shekinah, not even the vision of God appearing to the prophet and going up in the cloud of smoke and the sacrifice, not even the burning bush. None of those were like this, that Isaiah saw God exalted in this fashion. And the scene itself God is being worshipped. What are the angels doing as they fly back and forth before the throne of God? They're worshipping God. They're calling out to one another. They're singing to one another, if you will, as we read in the New Testament, that we are to sing hymns to one another. As we sing to God, we are to listen to one another, giving praises to God. It should encourage us. It should fire us up, if you will. To have our hearts into the worship of God that we are offering. As we hear those sitting next to us. As we hear the congregation singing. When I was, Dr. Rayburn was my homiletics professor at Covenant. I had the opportunity to go to his funeral. It was at Rayburn Chapel. There were 600 people at that service. You should have heard the singing. For all the saints was sung. It was moving. It was moving. That's what I'm talking about. As the angels listen to the other angels singing his praises. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And they're praising the name of God as they go back and forth. What a scene. What a great expression of God's greatness. These angels... Three pair of wings, 
He says, with two, they covered their upper portion. With two, they covered their lower portions. With two, they flew back and forth before the throne of God, singing to God's praises, His holiness. And you know why they cover themselves? Because their holiness is a derived holiness. Their holiness is one given to them by God, but God's holiness is His pure nature. It's who He is. It's a part of who He is. He is holy in His being, holy in His actions, holy in all things that He does. And these creatures that He has made delight in worship. Let me ask you this. Do you delight in worship? Do you delight in coming to worship? Do you look forward to it throughout the week as you know you're going to be together on the Lord's Day? And people, it's the people that seem to forget on Sunday morning they're going to worship. They stay out till late on Saturday night, even into Sunday morning. They're, oh, I've got to get them to worship the next day. Well, it didn't take you by surprise. Been that way every week for the long as you've been alive. Sunday, Lord's Day, the day to get together. And to worship God's people, may we delight in it as the angels delighted in their worship of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. They sing in sincerity. They sing with delight as they sing to their creator. And they sing of his holiness. Holy, you know, it means to be set apart. We speak of God's majestic holiness. You should know what that means if you went through my members class. His majestic holiness speaks of God's holiness as being separate from the creation, above the creation. We see his majesty displayed in the creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. God's creation speaks of his greatness, his holiness, his majesty. That the one who brought all things into being, and very good we read in the book of Genesis, that God is the God that we worship. That God is the God that we adore. He has displayed his power. He has displayed his majesty in the things that were made. But then we talk about his, his ethical holiness as well. Where God is the only being that exists who is altogether pure and holy unto himself. The angels are not pure and holy unto themselves. They were created. They were given this holiness by the God who made them. And so they rightly, who have of much fuller revelation than we, rightly sing of his glory. Of his greatness as they adore him in worship. A proper response to this magnificent, magnificent display of God's holiness to this prophet as the angels stand before him. And the power of God has overcome the prophet, as I said a moment ago. And he is terribly aware of his own sin. He becomes aware of himself in this vision. At this point, the prophet becomes aware of himself, brutally aware of himself. He knows he's a sinner. If you had, uh, you were eaten up with cancer, you had no symptoms, none whatsoever, and yet you were filled with it throughout your body. 
And you go and you have these pictures made and you have this MRI and you look at it and there you can see it all over the place. Isaiah became aware of the sin of cancer, I mean the cancer of sin in his life. As he saw those angels declaring God's holiness, as he saw God sitting on the throne, high and exalted we read in the text, he became terribly aware that his was a heart that was by nature in rebellion against God, and his was a heart that was not truly fully committed to Christ, to our God as it was supposed to be, as he should have been. He was aware of that. How many people can say here that I love God as I should love God? Not a person can say that here. No one can. Who can say before God, I live my life perfectly? We had a man that used to come to this church who said he didn't sin. It was a problem because he would interrupt. He would interrupt Sunday school classes. He would be disruptive. And finally, after much Talking, I said to him, the session wants to meet with you. And he never came back. I called James Kennedy because he told me he heard James Kennedy say, we don't sin after we're converted. I knew James Kennedy did not say that. And so I called him. And I said, look, I'm not accusing you of anything at all. I said, but here's what someone told me. I said, I just want to let you hear from you. I know you didn't say this. He said, it sounds to me like that man needs to be converted. That's how he put it. Because if you don't see your sin, you don't need Jesus. And if you don't need Jesus, the fact is, you're lost. So he had this great vision, this prophet did. If let me read this, this encounter with the Holy Ghost causes Isaiah to recognize a sickening fact about himself. John uh, Sartell was a pastor. Uh, he was independent press for a long, long time. And uh, I heard him in a sermon, a great preacher, say that he prayed one time for God to let him see his sin. Let him see the ugliness of his sin. Let him see within his heart what he was really like. And he said he pleaded before God for that to happen. And he said that God revealed it to him. And he said he cried out to God to take it away. He was so stricken by the reality of his nature, by the reality of his guilt before God, not before one another. We don't compare ourselves to other people. God is the one that is our judge, and God is the one that we seek to to be like him. If we're comparing ourselves to others, it's a sinner comparing himself to another sinner. That's no good. We can set examples for one another if those examples are good, which is a good thing to do. But Isaiah here is terribly aware now that he's seen God of a sickening fact about himself. Do you see your sin in that light? It's sickening. It's a sickening thing. And how God abhors it. Do you see your sin like that? Or do you overlook it? Do you simply overlook it and you excuse it in your own life? Let me read this to you. Such confrontation cannot help but produce despair for the finite, the moral, the incomplete, and the fallible to encounter the infinite, the eternal, the self-consistent, and the infallible is to know the futility and hopelessness of one's existence. As one fallible individual, prophet Isaiah, saw God there, he was reminded and recognized his own failings. 
The primary element, listen to this, the primary element of God's being that distinguishes him from human beings is not simply his essence, but his character. His character. That God is altogether holy. His character. Isaiah could do nothing to help himself. Isaiah was aware. He wrote this in Isaiah 64, 6. We all, uh, like an unclean thing, and all of our unrighteousness, and all of righteousness are like filthy rags, but we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags, says the prophet Isaiah. And so we subtract ourselves from God and His grace, and we look at ourselves under the microscope of a judgment uh, as we self-examine our hearts and minds, we recognize that we are terribly, terribly flawed and disgusting. That's how God will look at our sin. And we need to understand that. Isaiah, face to face with God in his holiness, is brought low and brought to abhor himself because of his own sin. I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. Sin surrounds me. Sin infiltrates me, says the prophet. And there's nothing that I can do to make myself holy before this God. The last thing is uh, the God of the universe, the sovereign God, is a God who is a God of grace. Well, what happens here? God performs an act of grace that allows Isaiah to stand before him and to say, what would you have me to do? You know what happens. One of the angels flies over to the altar where the burning coals are, takes it with a tongue, puts it in his hand, and flies over to Isaiah and touches his lips with that coal. I guarantee it burned. Severe pain. And what did God say to him? What did the angel say to Isaiah? Your sins are taken away. This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for. There's that word atoned for. His sin was forgiven not by the angel and not by what the angel did, but by the God who was a God of forgiveness. This was symbolic. The coal actually did nothing. Was Isaiah converted prior to this? Yes, he was already converted. Was he already righteous before God by faith? Yes, he was righteous before God, declared to be so. By justification, by faith, as all the saints of old were, justification by faith. He was a righteous man before the Lord. But he had to have something done in his life that gave him a sense that he could stand before God. And that was this act. Symbolic. A painful experience for the prophet, no doubt. But symbolic of the reality of the fact that as he stood before God by faith, he was righteous. Your sins are atoned for. And this certainly looks forward to the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ for our sins upon the cross of Calvary. When we come to that place in our own lives, when we look at our lives and we recognize how heinous our sins are before the Lord. We've become inoculated in our society. When we saw what happened, when I read what happened, saw what happened with with the baseball game of all things. And these people, they're performing. Someone said to me, well, it's just the way it is. Is that how we react to that type of thing? As they blaspheme our God? 
as they dishonor Christ? Is that how we react? It's to be expected. We live in a fallen world. We should expect that kind of thing to happen. There's nothing we can do about it. There's nothing we can say. There is something we can say. Absolutely. Do we have a zeal for God in his name? Do we have a zeal for Christ in his name? Do we? Or do we simply shrug our shoulders and say, well, that's just the way it is. Where is our passion? Where is our outrage? The God that is described here in Isaiah 6 is our Lord, is our Christ. That's the God that we worship. That's the God that we adore. And they blaspheme his name. They ridicule him. And what do we do? How do we respond to that? Do we become outraged or simply say, well, uh, just another case of the ungodly? Phineas in the Old Testament. I don't know how many of you know who Phineas was. God's people have become very corrupt in the Old Testament. There was a couple engaged in cultic practices. Phineas goes to the tent with a spear, kills them both with one blow. It pleased the Lord. I'm not saying let's go murder people. But the point is his zeal that he had for God's glory. Do we have a hint of that? Do we have a touch of that? That we are outraged at the way society treats his name. These people are atheists. They hate the Roman church. We, I, I, I know the Roman church has some significant problems. I understand that. But it's Christ they're talking about when they do those performances. It's Jesus they refer to when they do those performances. Our Lord, our Savior, our God. Where is our outrage? It should be something that should cause us to be up in arms. Do we have passion for Christ as Phineas did? Do we see the holiness of God as Isaiah did here in this text? Who's your God? What's he like? Is he really holy to you? Do you really see him in light of Isaiah 6? Or have we basically made him more or less one of us? After all, Jesus is our brother. Well, I'll remind you that Christ is coming back again. There will be people who call for the mountains to fall on him at the return of Jesus. They're so terrified by the coming of this judge, this king, this ruler who is sovereign. They're so terrified by his appearance, they want the mountains to cover them. That's the God we see presented here in Isaiah chapter 6. And really grasp how great and holy he is. Well. And let me ask you this. You worship this God. If you see him as the God who is holy. What difference does it make in your own life? What difference does it make in the way that you deal with your own sin? As you recognize your sin is an affront to this God who is altogether holy. My sin is an affront to this God who is altogether holy. Do I know him really? Do I understand that he is altogether holy? 
Is that my God? The God described here in Isaiah 6, is that my God? Is that my Christ who is holy through and through? Or is it something less than? Well, if it's something less than, we're not worshiping the God of Scripture. And we need to come to recognize by God's grace to do that. And then here's another question. Given his holiness, what difference does it make in your worship? When you come here every Lord's Day, do you come in here recognizing I'm going into the presence of the God described in Isaiah 6? He's here. He's present. He sees our hearts. He sees our attitudes. He sees our interest or lack thereof. He sees what we're thinking. He knows what we're thinking. He understands what we're thinking. We have the angels assembled around here watching us worship. The delight in our worship, or are they embarrassed by it? What difference does it make when we come into worship of how holy our God is? And the great expression of God's grace, though he is so terribly, terribly holy, full of awe and majesty, he loves us. He loves us. He's provided for our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. The only way that we can have a proper standing with this holy God. He makes no mistakes. He does no wrong. He is perfect in all of his ways, altogether pure. That's our God. When we come into worship, we sing praises to our God. That's the God we worship. That's the God we adore. He delight in you. Does he delight in the way that you come in here? He delight the way that you live your life. Does he delight in the zeal you have for his name? Or do we need to really reevaluates and be appalled. Someone said to me, people have forgotten how to be ashamed. It's true. It's true. We cannot accept that as God's people. We cannot accept God's name being degraded, the name of Christ being degraded as it is. He's our holy God. He's powerful, more powerful than they. He would have a stand for him. Let's pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for these texts, this word from your Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Help us, we pray, O Lord, to have a sense, a greater sense of your holiness and to be overwhelmed by it. And to be overwhelmed by your grace to us, this God who is altogether pure and holy and free from condemnation, free from guilt, free from sin. is a God who has redeemed us as your people through the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, work grace upon our graves. Give us boldness for the gospel, boldness for Jesus, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.